We're reading the first 11 verses in chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And then we're turning over to Hebrews chapter 9. It's on page 1207 in your Bibles. And I'm just reading a few verses from verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that we now already hear, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. This is the word of God. Good morning. Uh, Wow. What a subject we've got this morning. What a subject. Uh, We're looking at life through the cross, aren't we? And for some reason, uh, in 
someone's infinite wisdom, they've decided to give me the subject on evil. Now, I don't know why they thought that. Maybe they thought that, you know, Chris Everett probably knows more about evil than anyone else, so he's probably better placed to speak on the subject. And it has to be said that, you know, throughout my life I have had my dalliances and and brushes with evil, as no doubt we all have. Uh, I changed the the, the verses that we were meant to to read at one o'clock last last this morning. This is how long I've been up, you know, doing the research and everything. And I suddenly realised that after I did all my preparation, that I was doing my preparation on the verses that actually weren't scheduled to be read, which is quite typical for me. So I said, can we just quickly change it? So we changed it. And hopefully, well, you'll see why I said that. So we're looking at evil. Well, where and when... Should we begin? When I mean, where do we start when we talk about evil? Well, I would suggest that probably the best place to begin is in the beginning, uh, because we need to understand what evil is. Uh, is it an abstract thing, or is it a reality? Uh, what is the nature of it? How do we identify it? If we're Christians, if we're believers, then we should kind of be able to discern where evil exists. And so I thought it's probably best to start in the beginning to find out how evil made its entrance into the world. Now, when you think of evil, no doubt, as, as I do uh, when I think about evil, you think of particular people, don't you? Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, etc., etc. These are obvious cases of evil people who committed evil acts. And, you know, in the 20th century, there was more people murdered than the previous 19 put together. It's been a bloodthirsty century, and so it goes on. You know, evil is a very real thing that we live with throughout the whole of this world. And yet, evil made its entrance into the world with a question. With a question. Isn't that amazing? Not with war, not with disaster, not with bloodshed, but with a question. And the question was, did God really say? Did God really say? Now when you think about that, it seems on the face of it, a kind of genuine inquiry. There's a kind of innocence to it. Let's have a look at it. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Seems a bit harsh. You can eat from any tree, but not that tree. Is that right? Straight away, that question brings in a little seed of doubt. Did God really say? And I would suggest that all the evil that's existed from then until now has always been predicated on that question. Is God who he says he is? Did God really say? Because as soon as you start to question the authority of God, then sin comes into the world. And evil comes into the world. Because as soon as you start to question the the authority of God you're placing yourself in a position of authority yourself. And that's pride. 
Pride is the root of all sin. Self is the root of all sin. So the woman says, well, we can eat of any tree, uh, just not two, uh, uh, and we, we can't even touch those trees. So Satan presses on his advantage and suggests that God could be withholding something uh, that perhaps would be good to try and find out what that is. So from doubt, we come to denial. Mm, I don't think that's really right. I don't think that's really right. I, I, I think actually God is trying to hold something back from you here, this, the, the devil says. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In the authorised, it said, you will be as God's. The devil says, in effect, you know, there's something to your advantage here. If you just do this thing, I I like to sort of preach and sort of like have words that all begin with the same letter. So we're going to go for the D's a little bit more. So the next thing you've got now is the idea of self-deification. The idea that somehow you could be like God. Is it not enough that God has given you a paradise to live in? Is it not enough that all the plants are there for you to eat? All of the goodness of the garden is there for you to enjoy? And yet somehow that question has produced in Eve that little wonder, that little, that little thought, maybe there's more. Maybe there's more. Maybe God is withholding something. It's questioning the goodness of God. But you see, as this... As this narrative progresses, you find that more and more and more she's opening herself up. She's opening herself up to evil. And you know, self-deification, it's it's one of those things that really, when you look at all the people like Hitler and Stalin, you know, they were treated as gods, weren't they? They were treated like gods. So in verse 6 and 7, It says that when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You notice that, that the sin came through the eyes. That... The sin can't, the Bible says that the eyes are the window of the soul. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be clean. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. It's, it's through the eyes, the lust of the eyes, that produces the sin. Now, the, the, the thing that I find really amazing about this is that when you think of the garden, the garden wasn't like my garden. I've got quite a big garden, and I've got two or three trees in there. Uh, so you think, well, if the garden was that small, it's quite possible to sort of get your head around the fact that at the time that this conversation was taking place, Eve happened to be quite near the tree to begin with. And yet, actually, the garden to my mind, was a vast place with loads of trees and vegetation. And yet somehow, somehow when this conversation is taking place, where is Eve stood? Right by the tree. 
She could have stood by any tree, which seems to suggest to me that somehow the sheer notion that there was a tree that she wasn't meant to eat from or touch was so alluring to her, it was almost like that, who knows about the Lord of the Rings, it's almost like the ring of power. It's almost, there's, there's a kind of, there's a seduction to it. The moment you open yourself up to temptation, it's seducing, it's beguiling. It's something that suddenly it begins to take up your time and your attention. It's all that you can think about. Sin is like that. When you open yourself up to that kind of thing, it it takes a hold. And I believe it took a hold of Eve to the extent that, you know, she probably found herself almost involuntarily walking up to the tree and just gazing at it. And just looking at it and just wondering what it would be like. What would it be like to eat the fruit from that tree as opposed to any other tree? And so Satan has got the woman exactly where he wants her. So she's there. She's ready to take the fruit. Now, look, sisters, I'm not blaming you for what happened, okay? Because the men, you know, we we partook as well. So this isn't all about, you know, oh, look at the women, you know, they messed up, etc., etc. But you did take the fruit first. Okay? It has to be said. So she takes the fruit and her eyes are opened. What were they open to? I I think maybe a kind of self-awareness that they never had before because up until that point there was just innocence and you know the interesting thing is almost it's crazy really the bible tells us that adam and eve sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness in the in the in the in the uh, the king james it says they sewed uh, fig leaves to create aprons for themselves i love that aprons aprons of fig leaves we've been doing that ever since We've been doing that ever since. What are the fig leaves that you cover your lives with? What's the fig leaves that I cover my lives with? Because when you think about the fig leaves, the fig leaves were ridiculous. They couldn't really cover up the nakedness, but there was this sense that somehow they had to try and make up for what they had done. You know, I equate this to self-righteousness. Is because suddenly they realise that they did that was wrong and they try to cover it up. They, they sewed together some fig leaves in some kind of futile attempt to sort of, you know, make it look like they hadn't done anything wrong. Religion can be a fig leaf. Religion without relationship with Jesus can really be a fig leaf. Celebrity can be a fig leaf. Power Fame can be fig leaves. There's so many things that we can put around ourselves that are just nothing more than fig leaves. But you know, nothing is hidden from the sight of God, amen? God sees all and knows all. And here's the thing that I want to bring our attention to, because now we're really going to get in to the meat of this talk, is the Bible then says... uh, now, before we get to that, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself because we've got some more D's to do. <laughs> Verse 10. Uh, 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Who is it that's walking through the garden? The Bible says that God is spirit. Yeah? Who is it that's walking through the garden? I would suggest that this is what's known by theologians as a Christophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus or theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Jesus walking through the garden. Anyway, that's a side issue. And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So once sin comes in, there's distance. It creates a distance between ourselves and God because God is a holy God. And there can be no relationship between holiness and sin. That's not to say that God can't look at sin. Because let's, let's face it, let's be logical. You know, God looks at us every day of the week. And God looks at everything that happens in the world every day of the week. It's not like God cringes at the sight of sin. God can look at sin, but there's no compatibility between himself and sin. There can be no relationship, but that sin creates a distance. And when you don't have Jesus in your life, you're distant from God. You're distant from God. Sin separates us from God. And and then we carry on. Uh, And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So there's denial again. Now, instead of that loving relationship that was based on innocence and purity, now there's enmity. Now there's strife. Now there's, now there's self-justification. Can you see that already the fractures are beginning to show? And then if we drop down to verse 19, we come to our last D, the worst one of the lot. Because God proclaims by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so death comes into the world. You know, death only came into the world because of sin. Death did not exist in the world before sin. Now, I don't know what the evolutionists make of that. But my Bible tells me that death only reigned on the earth once sin had come in. Death and separation. They had all they needed, but it wasn't enough. But then let's get to the meat. Let's get to the meat. So, uh, where are we? Anyway, can't find the uh, can't find the verse. But what we see that happens next is that it tells us in Genesis that God provided garments of skin. Adam and Eve to wear in the old in the King James coats of skin where did that skin come from have you ever asked yourself that question where did the skin come from the skin of animals this is the first time in history that an animal has been killed to do what to cover sin it's a motif of the atonement it's a foreshadowing of the atonement because the Hebrew word for atonement is kufar, 
which means to cover. In some instances, it actually means to cover in pitch, but it means to cover. Now, people might sometimes say, and I've heard this said, that atonement means at one moment, and that's kind of accurate, I suppose, and it sounds kind of nice. But in actual fact, the word kafar means to cover. And so right from the very beginning of time, God shed blood for the forgiveness of sins because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So right from the word go, God in his mercy provided the coats of skin for Adam and Eve to wear. This is a motif of the atonement, and we see it again and again through the Old Testament. If we look at Exodus chapter 12, when the the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world and of sin and of Babylon, when we see the Israelites coming out of of Egypt after the plagues, the last plague was the plague on on the firstborn. And what is it that God said to the Israelites? You know, choose a lamb without defect, slaughter it, eat it, take the blood, put it over the doorposts. And when the angel of death passes over the land, the firstborn in your families will be spared. That's how we have the Passover. But again, it's the blood. It's the blood. It's a motif of atonement. It's a covering. It's a covering of sin. If you look at Leviticus in 19, you look at the sacrificial laws, you know, the the priests had to cover everything in blood. The altar... The doorposts, everything was covered in blood. The sacrifice of bulls and of rams. But the Bible says that the sacrifice of bulls and of rams could not clear the conscience of the people. It was purely symbolic, but it was a foreshadow. It was a forerunner. It was a motif. It was a symbol of what was to come. Those things were just a shadow, but they weren't the reality themselves. But throughout the whole of history, God has been showing us that there has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And of course, ultimately, that is, that is, that is the, the, the pinnacle of what God done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. Because everything prior to that was pointing to that one event when God would step into our world, take on flesh, become incarnate, live amongst us, be tempted in every way, and yet be without sin, be that lamb without spot or blemish that could hang on a cross, that could be sacrificed in our stead, the covering for our sin. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But praise be to God that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for us. Amen? So that we could come into a relationship with him. You know... It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what fig leaves you sow into your lives. It doesn't matter how much distance there is between you and God. It doesn't matter how much you deny that you've ever done anything wrong. We are all guilty in the sight of a, of a holy God. We are all guilty. We are all under condemnation. We all need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There, 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 there are some that say that, you know, uh, that, that, that somehow, you know, we can work to earn our salvation. 
I have this conversation so many times, especially with Muslim people, because they really believe that, you know, if they pray five times a day, if they go on pilgrimage, if they do this and they do that. But these are fig leaves. These are fig leaves. This is self-effort. This is self-righteousness. Christianity is the only religion that I know of that rather than us trying to reach God, God has reached, come down to reach us. God has done the exact opposite that religion tells us that we should do. And it's quite difficult sometimes because we feel that there should be more to it. We feel that somehow we should be able to atone for our sin. But only one who is more powerful than us can actually provide that purification, that covering. So my question to you this morning is, are your sins covered? Are they covered? Are they covered in the sight of God? Or are you sewing fig leaves together? Are you trying to do it yourself? Are you just counting on your own self-righteousness? Because in Isaiah, it tells us that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do that can impress God. So my appeal to to us, even if you're a believer, even if you're a believer... Is to, is to come into the presence of God and let him cover your sin. That's what the atonement is. And so right from the very beginning, right from the very word go, God gave us those motifs to point to the time when he himself would suffer and die on a cross to set us free from the power of sin and death. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that Jesus did that for me. And if you don't know that Jesus has done that for you, then I would, I would invite you to stop running. I would invite you to stop the denial. I would invite you to no longer doubt, but to put your life into his hands because he is more than able, more than able, more than able to bring you into his presence and to set you free. Do you know, when we was having the, the worship time earlier on, I just felt such a presence of God here. And I couldn't help but think it is such a wonderful thing that God has done for us. Such a wonderful thing. And sometimes I do feel quite overwhelmed by it because I know where I came from and where I am now. And I know that I didn't do anything to deserve the grace and the mercy and the love that, that God has poured into my life. It's a wonderful thing. And I just pray that if you don't know Jesus today, that you will come to experience that saving love and grace and mercy in the same way that I have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you that you have provided a covering for our sin. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to shed his precious blood on the cross. That blood that has the power to cleanse, the power to heal. But, Father, we give you thanks and praise that the grave couldn't contain him. And that death couldn't hold him. And on the third day he rose from the grave and now has ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the majesty, whereupon he, he gives, makes intercession for the saints. Father, we thank you and praise you. 
that the day is going to come when you will come back. Lord Jesus, you will come back, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. Father, help us in the meantime to get rid of those fig leaves. Lord God, to put our trust in you, that we might cover ourselves in your righteousness, so that as far as the east is from the west, our transgressions might be removed. In Jesus' name and for his name's sake, amen.